It's February 22nd, 2022, and it's time for another NatSec News Roundup podcast session. And as always, I'm joined by Matt McGregor. So let's just roll right into it. And the first one we got here is the state of competition in the defense industrial base, which is a DOD report. And so some of the interesting things here, they kind of talking about, you know, there was 51 aerospace and defense prime contractors, which has been consolidated down to five and across all these different types of uh, weapons categories, they were kind of showing numbers of the the decline. So there's only like two or three types of uh, U.S. prime contractors in each of these categories, like tactical missiles, fixed wing aircraft, satellites, surface ships, and all that kind of stuff. So one of the things I pretty quickly noticed here on, on their chart, though, is it's kind of hard, you know, the difficulty measuring competition is definitely there. And maybe it's just like, I, I know it when I see it is kind of like if there's competition or not. But it was almost kind of hilarious here that the government here said one weapons category is expendable launch vehicles. And so there's only whittled from six to two expendable launch vehicles providers, Boeing and Lockheed Martin. And obviously that excludes SpaceX, which is not expendable. They worked on reusability. And obviously no new space launch company would in their right mind would actually go for expendability, right? You can only go for cost effectiveness. So it seemed like this kind of was peppered through throughout here, right? Like there's all sorts of companies that are competition adjacent, whether that is foreign, right? Those should be competitors in a way, at least in the FMS market, but also just like some of these UAV or smaller competitors that aren't really being counted here. Uh, it seems like it's peppered out throughout, so... Any any kind of thoughts on this kind of view of well, let's just count the number of suppliers of of items, you know, like and and then we'll call that whether there's competition or not. Yeah, like we've talked before, it's yeah, this this whole you know, anytime you talk about something fundamental like this in the acquisition uh, business, you really do have to look at uh, you know the entire picture, and you have to understand the nuances because. You know, one of the other things is that there's oftentimes suppliers who just haven't gotten the big, you know, prime contracts, right? And and they, but they are a significant part of the supply chain for uh, some of these, you know, some of these systems. And so they may not make the entire system, but there's oftentimes a thriving, uh, you know, sub-tier supplier base too that also comprises this that I think you know, you have to look at it. It's not all about primes. Not every uh, contractor wants to do, wants to be a prime, wants to provide the integrated system. Uh, but, you know, if you break down these contracts, you're, you're looking at um, hundreds and thousands of sub-suppliers. So, so yeah, you can, I think these simplistic snapshots are, um, you know, maybe informative to some extent, but, but you definitely kind of have to take it to the next level down. Um, you know, and same, same with small businesses and things like that. Like, you know, how things are tracked, how they're categorized, uh, you, you know, you have to like dig in and, you know, with OTs and some of the other things you have to kind of look and make sure that you have all the data to say, this is actually a, you know, this is an accurate snapshot, right. Or at least acknowledge more, I think upfront that this is one piece of the snapshot that you could, you could have depending on how, you know, how you dig into it. Yeah, it seems like, you know, 
like for fixed wing aircraft, for example, you have all these competition adjacent places like the UAV. So you have General Atomics and Kratos. You have the new start guys like uh, the startups like Hermius and, and Boom and um, Blue Force and these other ones. And even Textron, you know, they have a fully developed aircraft that they were putting in for the trainer. Right. So um, it's not really clear why that was kind of left out. Maybe they kind of meant super high end, you know, stealth potentially. I'm not really sure. But um, so, yeah, it's definitely, you know, getting into the the nitty gritty. I bet you the Lockheeds and the Northrop's of the world don't feel like they have kind of like that oligopoly on some of these markets necessarily um, looking in the rearview mirror. But another way they've kind of gone about looking at competition, of course, is these so-called, you know, competitive contracts, right, um, as a measure of competition. So, you know, does the DOD use full and open competition on its contract where it kind of advertises its requirements, lets everyone provide proposals, and then they kind of select usually the lowest uh, right price, but um, whatever the best value is potentially from that. But you have to pre-specify the source selection criteria. You have to have well-defined requirements that everyone bids to. You have to provide certain types of cost and pricing data. You have to you know, provide it in certain formats and really high and long duration, you know, from the bid to the award. So it doesn't even feel like just because there's a competition in terms of this formal advertisement and, you know, proposal process, that is actually a good way of measuring competition in and of itself, right? You could have DOD negotiate a bunch of sole source contracts in a competitive backdrop, right? Like they don't have to necessarily, you know, use these SICA, right? Competition and Contracting Act procedures, to, to get to competition right so i wonder you know like what's your view on that can't like it feels almost unfair that dod like a contracting office or a or a program office can't just go to a firm that they think is the best and just go contract with them or maybe even go out to several of them and contract on their own kind of sole source basis but kind of keep competition alive at the enterprise level it's just like we think of contract like competition at the contract level even if that's not the best way of thinking about it yeah, I mean, I think there's some be said for that, you know, in terms of, you know, full and open competition in some cases is the best way to go. You know, is it, you know, is it right to do it in one huge fell swoop where you, you basically do it at the start before R&D has, you know, even started and you make your decision at that point and then you're kind of like, you know, you're kind of stuck with that vendor through ups and downs for years and years and years, and you hope that they, you know, come out the other end with something uh, affordable that you can buy. So yeah, that's probably not, you know, not always the right way to go. Um, so I think, I think having full and open is one indicator, but like you said, I mean, sole source, you know, especially if you're using like an OT or something where, you know, you've, you've gotten white papers, you've done some analysis, maybe you've done some experimentation or prototyping, that wouldn't come out as like a full and open competition, even though you actually did sort of, you know, deep dive some of these systems. Maybe you, you sort of saw how they integrated with other systems and how they, you know, worked into your concept of operations that, uh, you know, the specific user was, uh, was, was, was working against. And so, you know, maybe you did all that and you just decided at the end of it, yeah, this guy's this, this one vendor is a clear, uh, clear winner. Uh, we need to go buy some of these. Now, I think the <laughs> the other point that we've talked about is there's all, not too many examples, at least, you know, large scale examples 
where that's happened. So, you know, if, if that is happening, it's probably, you know, it probably is like buying a certain number of prototype units, uh, you know, or, or different things. So we haven't seen those big procurements uh, for those types of systems. But I could, I could envision that in the future where if that's happening more, it wouldn't come out in the data, like you said. It would be a little bit, you'd have to kind of dig and understand that a little better. Yeah, I remember I saw... Uh, I saw this book in the library, which was like a DARPA, kind of like how they do business. And it was from the 80s. And they were just like, the Competition and Contracting Act has killed our ability to get to the vendors we value and we want to contract with. And I was just like, yeah, man, I can, I can see how, you know, it feels like a policy failure when you're like trying to push up the statistic on this one thing, but then you're kind of not measuring the right thing. And then you, even then, Right. We've seen like they had the chart where they showed percent competed contracts kind of falling from the high 50s to the low 50s over the 2010s, which isn't that like concerning. But it's just like, what does that really mean in this whole context? And one of the recommendations they did make, though, was kind of, um, you know, push on adopting other transactions and commercial solutions openings. So the commercial solutions openings, of course, is the CSOs. It's a solicitation you know, method and not necessarily a contract vehicle itself, but it does allow for that kind of open, you know, allow for those white papers to come in and you can kind of deal with them on an individual basis and make merit-based awards, you know, one or many awards, um, depending on what you get. So it would be great to see the CSO. So I actually agreed with, you know, DOD in the report on that point. We need that kind of cultural embrace of commercial solutions openings. Um, but they didn't really talk much about how to get there. And I think CSOs, I think it just became a permanent authority, but I haven't really seen the conversation started on it, you know, to a big degree. Yeah. I mean, I think DOD writ large is probably still understanding them when you think about like from, a the DPC, um, uh, the pricing and contracting shop and, and OSD, I think they're still trying to understand them. And I think part of it is they don't have as much insight into you know how the consortiums are, are, are doing operations or um, the different OTs how they're being uh, competed because like you know but the like, CSOs don't need to go to an OT you could have a far based or okay, it's yeah. like no, it's up true. to the and it almost feels like that that's right right because if you have non traditionals you know like they have that new rule where non traditionals can use commercial item procedures even without a commercial item determination. So because they are a non-traditional, yep. they can use some of those rules like the the commercial IP rules, which are really a lot, a lot more flexible. And so it feels like with the CSO, you don't have to necessarily like, you know, call out that you're going to have this open competition in a certain way that goes with the FAR vehicle because um, you almost have to choose it up front, right? So like the CSO allows you to say, okay, a non-traditional submitted that, I'll give him this commercial item contract. This traditional submitted that, um, I can give him this cost plus or whatever type of contract would be you know, good for that traditional guy. But you don't have to have like, all right, it's going to be a firm fixed price, this type of award, and everybody submits to it. And then depending on who wins, we go with them. No, no, you're right. Yeah, with the CSOs, you can determine. I mean, I, I'm skeptical that too many offices would choose to go far base just because even with, even with the commercial item determination, it's oftentimes, uh, you know, there's still a lot of things required that are considered onerous. Um, and you get potentially put under other, you know, other, uh, 
other requirements that you might be able to more easily uh, tailor under under an OT. So uh, yeah, maybe maybe that is the way to go, or maybe you just say we're dealing with non-traditionals. You know, ninety percent of the CSO submissions are going to be from small companies. We're just going to use OTs, and you know, um, you know, kind of almost like I could almost see where you just have like almost a a template of like these are the the general terms and conditions that we have with with a non-traditional. They're, they're flexible. They're you know more adaptable to what a company would expect from a commercial customer. And you just sort of like when you whenever you want that technology or you want to go you know take it to the next level, you can you know, quickly go do that without this, you know, long, huge backlog of, of uh, negotiations and all the things that uh, we've seen historically. So yeah, CSOs are amazing. I, I, I think, uh, I think even though DOD, my, my point was going to be, even though DOD is not tracking them, I was making the point with OTs, but OTs and CSOs, I think it's both the case, even though the, the larger head, headquarters is not tracking them as closely, I think you're seeing a lot more usage at the lower levels. So I think that's promising. Uh, hopefully <laughs> we haven't heard too much about like a lot of places rolling out with CSOs. Ben McMartin had a nice little post where he highlighted an air force one that wasn't, you know, AFWorks and DIU and a couple places have used them, but you know, would like to see them kind of rolled out to the traditional program offices. Um, uh, but let's, let's move on. There's, there's five recommendations they made. One of them is, um, additional mergers and acquisitions scrutiny. And it's kind of unclear to me what the criteria are for approval or disapproval. But then it's also kind of unclear to me, you know, and of course, this was, you know, driven by the administration rather probably than the department itself on additional scrutiny. But it also doesn't really make sense to me. You know, for example, in a Lockheed um, Aerojet merger, which was nixed, you know, wouldn't Lockheed just kind of run with Aerojet being just like a major business unit, a profit and loss center? Like, how much, you know, efficiency is there really to gain? I mean, from the outside, it's hard to say. Of course, people on the inside would probably say there's tons of reasons. But, you know, I guess I'm kind of confused on both sides as to what's the point of more consolidation at, and why why combat that if they, if they need to. But that's one of the points here. It looks like more scrutiny will be coming down the pike. Yeah, even the DevSecDev came out with a, a statement or memo on that. So yeah, it's clear they're sending the message that uh, if you're already a large company and you're going to try to you know do a lot of horizontal integration, it's probably uh, more vertical integration. You're probably not going to probably not going to get the approval unless it's you know there's already really robust competition. So you know I think what's interesting is companies that really do want to proceed with that are going to have to probably show how they do have competition, like you made the point with some of the smaller vendors, and say. Yeah, actually, we're not dominant in this. We're actually having, you know, two commercial companies that are, you know, competing with us in this space. And therefore, this isn't a big deal. So you could, I could almost see some of those arguments taking place. Yeah. And of course, the FTC chair, uh, Khan, who's actually very young herself, but she, uh, I guess she wrote like her thesis on like how Amazon, despite it not like fitting the traditional market power, you know, criteria actually is a monopolist in some ways and so like there's like this power notion that she's been driving and i guess she's kind of applying that here to department of defense or at least the defense industry um, which is interesting yeah it actually is a good good point i mean it kind of actually goes with what you've been saying that these vendors are the only ones able to navigate you know when you have things like uh cost accounting systems and 
um, you know, being able to, you know, have the overhead to, uh, to do some of the things that the government requires, uh, you know, it's, you know, survive a year long or plus source selection, for instance, um, you know, not every company has the cash flow to, to, to wait for that. So in a way, you know, it's kind of a good point is it's not blatant, but like Amazon and the way they negotiate their suppliers or promote their own products, like they are kind of in a way similar. There's some similarities there. I could almost see that too. But there was, uh, I guess, in a separate story, Amintum has closed a $1.9 billion acquisition of PAE. And so Antonym was uh, the 46th largest defense contractor on the top 100 list, moving up to 23rd after it acquired DynCorp International. And now uh, PAE was ranked 80th on that top 100. And so... As you consolidate those together, they're going up the ranks. But this one actually did close, while the Aerojet Lockheed merger, which was much higher in visibility, did not. <laughs> but of course, uh, there's a big difference there between those two. Yeah, I was kind of amazed actually. I didn't realize that these uh, these companies. I looked up. I looked up the uh, the merger announcement, and the they're one of the largest providers. Um, of, of services to yeah, federal government, allied governments as well. $9 billion over the last 12 months, uh, capabilities spanning synthetic training, sensor-based technologies, intelligence, cyber and IT, spectrum and electronic warfare, space operations, environmental solutions, asset management, mission support. So really, really runs the gambit. I, I wonder if it, that's not why they kind of got, didn't have more scrutiny is because they have such a broad, uh, focus that it wasn't, you know, it was probably, it probably would have been hard for the FTC to say, you know, you're dominating this one area because they, they really are kind of a broad, um, broad provider. So I don't know. Yeah, most definitely. So one of the next uh, recommendations here from DOD was increasing emphasis on intellectual property needs and defining that early in the acquisition process. So that seemed to align a lot with kind of what the IP cadre has been saying, um, but it feels like, you know, this will actually kind of go against their idea of increasing new entrants, uh, because it, it seems like that would actually drive away new entrants, especially kind of commercial guys who have like a lot of IP that they have sunk self-funded capital into, and they don't, don't want to kind of just like give that away for a pittance and then kind of open that up to, you know, the, the rest of the, the industry to kind of compete on. So. Um, you know, this one I think is going to be a continuing conversation, but any thoughts on, on them kind of really calling out IP as a very big item here? Yeah, no, it's, it's really, uh, I think DOD at least realizes, I mean, the IP cadre is, is trying to educate the workforce and they're trying to get some of the basics down. I, I don't agree with their guidance as it is. I think it's still, still going back kind of a little bit more old school and focused on like the government getting everything and not really focused on creating these valued relationships that, um, you know, give the government the ability to, uh, you know, have so many options. You don't need to worry about IP because you have, you know, about securing IP for like 20 years because you're, you have so many options that, you know, you can move to the next, the next great thing that's available. So I think it's still a little myopic, but, um, and, and it's, and your, your point's really valid is, that's that's what's scaring away a lot of commercial business. So, yeah, it's kind of funny to say you want more insurance, but then at the same time, you know, we need to start locking down data rights more. I think there's promise in the specially negotiated license, at least talking about that. I don't think people still 
the workforce generally understands what that means. I think everybody is still in the mindset of defaulting to, I want my government purpose or unlimited rights. So we, we have to we have to get beyond that. Most certainly. And another one, I was not surprised, but it's kind of like, okay, uh, small businesses is something that they want to emphasize. But for me, it's like, well, small businesses have always had kind of like set aside programs and all this emphasis. So one of the things that they said there was that they want to like concentrate small business on their priority sectors, which they identified in their in their fifth recommendation, which was to increase supply chain resiliency for areas, including uh, castings of forgings, critical materials, microelectronics, munitions. Um, it, but it just seems like these areas are really capital intensive. They're not like the classic place you'd want uh, small businesses to necessarily be uh, participating in, like castings and forgings and microelectronics. Like, I, I know that there's some companies, you know, looking at very new ways of doing microelectronics, but like for the most part, just like a big ass fab is not something a small business is going to take care of or like critical materials, like going out and mining, you know, with like major, you know, capital outlays, um, castings of forgings as well. So any thoughts on the small business front? Actually, I, I'm not sure about that. I think um, I think with the castings and forgings, I think with the, the move towards 3D printing, well, you're right. Some of those things are capital intensive as well. But I think there's a lot more innovation uh, happening. Fair enough. You know, yeah. Um, and, and then on the mining front, I actually. But I'd like to see where the money actually goes, right? Like yeah. the traditional guys like doing it the traditional way. But yeah, go ahead. I mean, I think I personally think that uh, there's no way we can stick with the way we're doing castings and forgings. I, I mean, there, if we ever needed to, I mean, you've talked about mobilization. If we ever want to get to a place where we have the ability to mobilize or to produce, you know, many, many things, um, you know, many smaller uh, kind of units, but that have some level of sophistication, we're going to have to we're going to have to get a move away from that. So. So I think it's inevitable. I, so I think they're going to have to actually start tapping into more commercial uh, innovation there. But on the on the mining front, the only thing I'd say, I agree with you on electro, microelectronics. That's just like a that's a huge thing. I think the Chips Act and other things like that will have to get after that energy storage and batteries. I think there's a lot going on in the S and T world on that. I think you're going to see some big advances um, in the not so distant future. Although I did I did notice that, that one feels like a small business new entrant kind of world. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, somebody somebody could like at least start it, and then some bigger company like uh, you know like Tesla does gonna have to scale it. But um, on the mining front, I actually think uh, there's there is quite a bit of potential for innovation there. I was surprised. I went through a strategic minerals course, and I was surprised at how there was a lot of niche organizations that actually developed the processes for for processing and for processing in more efficient ways, more environmentally friendly ways. So I think there's a, I think there's a market there. It, it's not big though. It's very specialized. So, so yeah, I mean, uh, it's, it is strange they put it in here, but I think they had to because, because of the rare earth discussion and, and, and the, the need for stockpiling lithium and things like that. So. Yeah. And small business is actually a pretty big category. Like I remember I was looking up like Moderna back in the COVID days. Well, we're still in those days, but <laughs> Moderna was a small business. And I was like, man, what is this? It's like, oh, well, you have to have 1500 employees or like a certain amount of, it depends on the NAICS code, but small businesses can actually be pretty big and they have all sorts of different, you know, graduations, but yeah. And they, and they can be divided up. Like one company could have 
Oh yeah. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> multiple, <laughs> like, multiple like nakes kind of yeah, business yeah. size, which is confusing as hell to me. But uh, <laughs> yeah, on this last one on the supply chain resilience, the the fifth recommendation, my comment there was just kind of like, okay, you've identified these important areas. Um, is DoD willing to forego shiny new platforms to fund these supply chain issues, or will it endure like literal weapon systems cost growth to fund it indirectly, right? Or how are they, because like it, you, it's all good to talk about supply chain issues and you can coordinate like, if we go to war, you can do this and you can do that. And like, this is what we'll need. But like, you, it takes money at the end of the day to plug those things. So um, unless some fairy godmother is coming with that money, DOD is going to have to make those trade-offs, right? Yeah, the one thing we haven't done, and, and, and actually been having this discussion recently on the on the medical side is there are certain things that are uniquely DOD uh, products on the medical front, uh, like ChemBio and things like that. So um, the idea that we pretty much support that enterprise by always developing something. And so we, we are like always kind of throwing some money at it to, to do something, but maybe we need to get in the business of we're actually sustaining or maintaining a capacity, right? Like you're not going to give huge chunks of money, but you like, you give a certain amount of money to sustain just a basic kind of capacity in some of these areas so that you have that capacity when you need to tap into it. And we're not structured that way. I think it's a budget process is a huge part of it. It's like, it's the same thing we've talked about with like, you know, why, why not invest in, you know, tooling and some of these other things that maybe are not for a particular platform, but you're setting up the foundation, the infrastructure uh, to, to enable, you know, future goodness. And so, yeah, that's one thing we're not, we're, DoD is not good at. You know, it's it probably would be tough to fund because there's so many competing priorities, but it's definitely something we need to look at because in some of these cases, um, we might need to uh, might need to do something on that front, especially if we anticipate going into some kind of uh, competitor competitor conflict where we're going to need to surge. Most definitely, it's uh, time to make industrial mobilization cool again, right? That's that's the next horizon after PBBE reform. Right? <laughs> I love it. <laughs> I mean, it's just got to be it. Like the ultimate end game is like, how do you prepare for something like that? Because we're not in that position right now. It's almost like it feels like, you know, like DOD's like the fight tonight, you know, one hit knockout kind of position. But does it have the stamina, right, to kind of like go at it um, for a longer duration? You know, in World War One, everyone's like, "Oh, this is gonna, this is going to be a quick war, right?" And then it turned out to drag out forever. So, kind of worry about that. But I feel like you know you got to get PBBE reform to get the structure of resource allocation right first, and then you can kind of start thinking about, okay, now what does that mean in terms of preparing for a future conflict? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, well, sticking with the state of industrial competition or competition in the industrial base. David Berteau uh, from the, what is it, the the Cer Public Services uh, Coalition, right? Yeah, council or something. Yeah, yeah council. There you go. Professional. <laughs> Professional Services Council. There you go. Got got the PSC. Uh, he had a, I wouldn't call it scathing, but it was uh, not the best report, <laughs> you know, on defense news about it. And I'll just pick out the one, one thing here where he was kind of saying, you know, companies can only afford to do this kind of innovative stuff if they have a return on investment, right? And so this kind of idea of risk being rewarded through returns, they don't have to be like as large as the commercial sector, but at least makes sense. Seems to be 
you know, a big element of this, right? Because it, it feels funny, right? Like the DOD is trying to chase all of this kind of capital and entice it. But capital flows to where it thinks there is value and, and money to be made. And money is there's money to be made when, you know, you're providing something better than all the alternatives at a lower cost or a much higher quality. So I think there's something to this kind of margins. I'm not really sure exactly where to go with it, but any thoughts? Well, yeah, I've, I've been thinking a little bit about this. I haven't really fully formed my, my, my thoughts, but we basically just need to get in the business of, and I keep using the word business, but you know, do a business case analysis on the different options and not get so fixated on the contract approach. You know what I mean? Like there's going to be different types of business deals that you can enter into depending on the company and their business model. And we just have to get better at looking at being able to compare, okay, this company wants to license to us annually. You know, they want, they just have a fixed cost. They want us to pay XX. Um, They don't care how much it's used. This other company is more, you know, scalable. They, you know, have ranges from a hundred users can use it to a thousand users and there's different price ranges. And then someone else might have like a different service model and someone else might say, no, I just want you to buy, you know, like we have to get, I think we have to get better at comparing and being more flexible in our business, in our business approaches. And uh, it, that just requires getting smarter and doing this more. But uh, to me, that's what it strikes here is they're absolutely right. If, if we're trying to jam everybody into this like cost plus or fixed price kind of thing and, um, you know, we're going to scrutinize you and we're going to, you know, judge you primarily on cost, which is what we do. Uh, then, yeah, it's going to basically some companies are just not going to see the return on investment. Like, hey, I can go do something else. I don't need to I don't need to work with you. So, yeah. <laughs> All right. So let's uh, move on from the world of uh, competition in the defense industrial base to building the future of U.S. Navy surface force from Naval News. And there was actually just a very interesting chart here called ICS Evolution, how they're kind of moving from a legacy business model to what they call the future force level model. And it looks like, you know, for so this is PEO IWS integrated warfare system, which has like all sorts of different, you know, sonars and different types of systems and ordnance systems that, that come with it. But they, they're kind of showing here that they kind of have like this, you know, business model where each kind of class of system had their own tightly coupled hardware and software solutions. And so IWS 1.0 kind of worked on the DDGs and, and, and the, uh, um, and some others. And then IWS 4.0 is for FMS and IWS 8.0 is for the frigates and LCS and some of the unmanned stuff. And then 10.0 is for the, the LPDs and the LHDs. So, the kind of small carriers, right, as well as the CVNs, the supercarriers. And they're kind of showing, okay, we're going to move to this future place where, yeah, there might be some different hardware for each of those um, item classes, but then they'll all share the same, it looks like, you know, information technology stack where they'll have the same, you know, infrastructure um, as a service so cloud platform as a service and then software on top of that so it looks like it'll be more modular more kind of like i guess um, ability to have synergies between them did you did you take a look at this or have you heard about this yeah actually it's funny we've been talking to them um i'm not sure that i saw i don't think i saw it laid out quite like this but i mean i think the idea is sound in terms of 
you know, a lot of these systems, a lot of these different ships, they, they run on some common, uh, common infrastructure anyway. Right. I mean, there's like, there's certain types of systems that every ship has to have. There's certain types of radios and things to, to communicate. So there's already some commonality there. Might as well create uh, for some of the software apps that will will be different, right? You will have to tailor them because, you know, there'll be different applications that they're needed for it. So it, it does kind of make sense to me that, uh, that they could move to a modular approach like this. Um, I think the ships, though, I'm kind of, I was kind of curious about... Um, how this actually would integrate with some of the legacy systems. Cause the, you know, I don't know if this is something that will only be for some of the new stuff. I noticed they had it for, uh, for the DDG um, and for some of the, some of the unmanned surface vessels. It just makes a lot of sense, but you know, it definitely might not be backwards compatible because some of the, some of those systems are extremely, you know, kind of integrated with, proprietary stuff and you have contractors on board those ships that maintain them and stuff. So yeah, I'm, I'm not, I'm not, I don't have a good picture of exactly how this would play with all the ships that we already have, but definitely seems like a, the right vision going forward. Yeah. You remember when we were talking about how the, the Aegis common library has been kind of like expanded out to all these other different systems that were on different ships. I wonder oh, yeah, if there's sure. some element of, of that, that is kind of underneath all of this, you know? Yeah, I mean, Aegis is this like the is is not doesn't do everything though. So it's just this that's just one weapon system on the on the on, t- on most of these ships. So I don't know if it would apply as broadly. or that's just like a common repository of of things. And I mean, I guess the maybe, the infrastructure maybe. as code they're going to have to go towards like the the joint common warfighting, right? Like I assume as part of this tech stack. Yeah, I mean, I guess the question is, is do they want, how, how much do they want to standardize? I mean, you can have layers, right? You can build layers on top of, on top of some of these, uh, some of the, some of the, some of the platforms that are already, um, that already have sort of software on there. So, I mean, you can architect it in such a way that you can, you can, you know, build a repository and sort of feed, feed different capabilities as part of the, um, as part of this evolving architecture, but. Yeah, I'm not sure if Aegis is going to be the answer, and yeah, I think I probably need a few more details on this one. So, but it's—I mean, the vision is the vision is sound, though, right? I mean, in terms of we talk about this with software factories, where you you having a uh, common enterprise or a common infrastructure that that everything can ride on, common repositories that you know you can reuse modules. I mean, this is the whole point with containerization is. You know, there you don't have to start from scratch with every single application. You can reuse a lot of code, and so if this is the vision for a new ship gets a new unmanned surface vessel gets developed, and you go, okay, well we can use this, this, and this. Um, okay, maybe we need to create this, but it can ride on, on on this infrastructure, and this this infrastructure has built-in interfaces to the key systems, the uh, communication systems, blah blah blah. Uh, so that kind of does make sense to me as to have that kind of tech stack. Um, but, but yeah, how, how it all plays together and what's, what's federated and what's not, I think there's some questions. Yeah. I was trying to figure out what they, so there's PEO IWS and then they have a program office ICS, which is, I guess the point of this chart or who produced this chart. And they're going to be the technical governance and driving force to ensure this evolution that we've been talking about. Do you know what ICS is? I, I, I don't know that, that structure. I was trying to look for it online. I just 
I, I guess it might be like integrated combat systems or <laughs> I don't know, yeah. but they're trying to integrate the integrated warfare systems. I think, I think it's probably integrated combat system, but yeah, I don't know for sure either. It's not <laughs> on that chart, <laughs> but Aegis is definitely under IWS, right? So I, AMDR was, I'm not sure if Aegis was. Uh, yeah, I couldn't say for sure. No. Uh, so we'll move on to another kind of battle command system here. The U.S. Army's uh, IBCS, which, of course, came from the the IAMD, the Integrated Air and Missile Defense System. And they're building that out to kind of be like a JADC2 node here for, for the Army. We've been tracking it. I'm pretty bullish on it. But, you know, in this article, they were kind of talking about a little bit of troubles here Um in iot and e so test and evaluation was kind of pushed from september to january it's not too big of a deal but it was due to deficiencies in identifying um issues for software testing so um i don't know it just kind of reminded me that the the issues here for um, northrop Grumman were really like software based and this kind of gets back to the the competition piece it's almost like you know, where's the software native firm that can kind of take this over? If like the issues tend to be in software and that's what's delaying a lot of the capability, um, you know, might it make sense that a software firm is like kind of like the prime or the lead and then like a Northrop Grumman is kind of providing some of the hardware and, and some of the other support with their deep expertise. I don't know. It was just kind of one of my my feelings there that, you know, this might this is a kind of a legacy system that's trying to be like pushed into a much broader and bigger role than it was ever imagined. And will, will there be kind of issues there on the software front, not necessarily the hardware front? Yeah. I mean, I think they did. I think the, yeah, the, the scope got expanded quite a bit. And so it took them a lot longer to, to get there. They did move to the software pathway. They are, they are, you know, getting to a baseline uh, for the, uh, they're basically the engagement operations center. And so they're, they've been authorized basically to produce, you know, potentially up to 454 of these, these centers. Um, and there's, there's like a core core software element to it that has been the most challenging piece. So once they get that fielded, they're going to move to the software pathway to continue deliver, delivering additional capabilities over time. So I think they have a good, I think they have a good plan and, and they've definitely moved to the more DevSecOps approach. So I think they learned a lot in the early stages. They definitely took on too much probably at first, um, but it seems like they've moved past most of that and, and they're, they're going into LRIP for, uh, uh, for this capability. So yeah, IoT and E, there's always going to be something that you have to, you know, adjudicate coming out of IoT and E. So it sounds like they're in a, at least a reasonably good position. Yeah, it wasn't overall. There wasn't too much hammering uh, from IoT that I could see. So moving on to the next one, DoD accelerates AI capabilities with 249 million blanket purchase agreement, and that goes to Veritone from Denver, Colorado, which creates the AI Aware uh, platform, which um, basically helps you know and is a key application for test and evaluation which seems very similar to what they awarded very recently. I think it was $250 million to scale AI. They also have the same sim- or similar capabilities. So, you know, when I'm looking at these awards from, from the Jake, it seems like 
you know, they don't have all that much money, right, appropriated to them. So like this one, con- this one BPA, I guess it's five years, but would be a significant chunk of their, of their outlays or that they could outlay. But it seems like, you know, Jake is really kind of doubling down on, you know, infrastructure and like test and evaluation stuff to like support the enterprise rather than any applications itself. So I'd just be interested to see, you know, what they're, what they're doing, whether other program offices really jump on to what they're doing, similar to like, you know, the other software factories or whether they even need a software factory almost to go do this or whether they could just kind of do it through commercial partners. And then like how much of these contracts that they're letting, which have pretty high ceilings, you know, will, will they actually get obligated to, or are they just kind of like show horses? So there's a bunch of stuff. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I think, um, I think, I think the Jake's doing the right thing with laying out all of the tools and providing, you know, they have the ability to, you know, get expertise to help too, um, for programs that are, that are trying to do something on this front. You know, it, it it's, this is, Something I, I do think it's going to take a while for the enterprise to get good at, uh, but I think um, I think there's enough push, enough emphasis on it that I think with uh, the Jake doing what they're doing, providing the training, providing the you know all the things that are needed, the infrastructure, I think um, it will it will provide programs almost a um, you know too easy of an opportunity to not at least try to do uh, some smart things with you know oh hey can can we use uh, are there some some algorithms that could actually enhance some of the functionalities that we're already, we're already developing. Uh, maybe I don't need to, you know, do a, a huge thing. I just need to uh, take advantage of the data that I have in, in different ways, uh, increase decision time, blah, blah, blah. Uh, so there's, there's so many opportunities. I think that, I think they're setting the groundwork and um, I'm hopeful that they don't just sit on the shelf that these are actually used. So <laughs> we'll, we'll see though, like you said. Yep. And so moving on, and that's of course the, the joint common foundations, right? Um, that, that the Jake is trying to build there. Uh, but the next one we got NASA officials reportedly horrified that SpaceX's starship may succeed from futurism. And so, uh, this one was pretty interesting. I'll just like read the quote out here. Politico characterized starship as inspiring a mix of awe and horror at NASA and its traditional aerospace contractors. Um, so I thought that was pretty interesting, a mix of awe and horror. Certainly at the traditional aerospace, you'd think NASA would be fairly happy that they can do more um, towards their mission with less cost. Um, and one of the the quotes here or the key points is that um, Boeing, which of course is still getting funded over a billion dollars a year for its SLS launch vehicle, is $2 billion per launch on the price tag for that to do the Artemis moon mission um, in comparison to Starship, which besides just being able to do it in a less stage, right? Two stages versus one, um, the Starship could do it for $1 million per launch, <laughs> I guess when that's at like full rate. So that's, you know, a really a, like a thousand X improvement there. If Starship does what Musk says it's going to do, and it doesn't look like SLS is really going to be able to bring down the price tag very much. Um, if anything, it looks like cost growth is still in the future. So, um, yeah, it's interesting. You know, I, I guess that's what you get for like innovating and breaking everybody's rice bowls, right? <laughs> like, you know, you're going to get people kind of worried about, you know, their place in this whole thing. Yeah, I think that's exactly what it is. I mean, for sure, the contractors are probably uh, a pretty, 
you know, um, pretty scared about this. But yeah, I think for NASA, I can I can envision sort of how that probably went is, you know, they had all their requirements all jammed into the SLS thing. And there's probably, you know, all sorts of things that they want that SpaceX is probably not really uh, doesn't believe is a commercially, you know, applicable requirement. And so they probably are a little scared of like being, you know, subject to Elon Musk's whims and like, you know, basically we're going to have to accept whatever he gives us because it's so cheap. We can't do anything otherwise. So yeah, I can yeah, see but, but he, he gave them like a new option and a new value yeah. capability, <laughs> I know, right? I know. It's like, yeah. if he didn't exist, then they would just be like happy to pay $2 billion and then like run into these appropriation crunches and have to cut out every other satellite that they're building for like science and stuff, you know? Yeah, but you're thinking you're thinking rationally, Eric. And you're thinking, <laughs> you know, it, it, the government only cares about money when it's uh, like a contract, right? When it's when they're talking about the systems that they want, it's like money money becomes no object. So yeah, no, I think I think there's smart people at NASA who are probably see the potential and go, yeah, we could actually do way more missions. We could do XXX, and then there's probably people at NASA who are integral with the whole SLS, probably planned it, architected it all that who are like, no, but this is our thing. This is what we've been working towards. So yeah, you probably have some different factions. <laughs> all right. So moving on to the Navy, U.S. Navy christens first snakehead UDLDUUV prototype. And that's for large displacement unmanned undersea vessel or vehicle. Um, and that's the snakehead. And so one of the interesting here, things here is it is equipped with government-owned architecture um, autonomous capability uh, and a bunch of innovative things in hull material as well as a lithium ion battery uh, which is coming from general atomics the electromagnetic systems is called the lift battery systems lithium ion fault tolerant and so maybe this will help solve some of like the endurance problems i'm not really sure how it you know how much it can endure, you know, like how long will it go without being ma maintained or powered or whatever it is. Uh, but good to see something out there. And it looks like, you know, this is an example of the Navy kind of, you know, taking ownership of the baseline, right? Mastering the baseline, being able to, you know, put together different pieces um, with the government reference architecture and, you know, maybe, you know, actually be able to push the, the envelope, but then maintain its options going forward. It seems like there's a whole ton of, you know, different prototypes that they're doing. So I would love to see kind of like the full gamut of this whole thing. Yeah, it definitely feels, it feels a little bit like the, uh, you know, like the first prototype, you know, out the, out the gate, uh, it's going to be probably modified and advanced and, you know, iterated on a million times to get, different capabilities uh, to, and to improve, prove it in a bunch of areas. The, the thing that stuck out at me that uh, was a little bit more problematic is that for one, it's envisioned for the LCS, which is going to be retired at some point. They're already planning its their retirement dates, even though they haven't all been delivered, but um, it's clearly has like the, the mission to what they call intelligence and preparation of the environment to go, to go out ahead of any sort of, you know, ahead of the fleet or ahead of a mission, you know, characterize, characterize the environment. So it, it has a clear mission set, which I think is really helpful. Um, the backup plan seems to be that it'll be deployed from submarines, but it doesn't fit in a standard torpedo tube. So it has to be launched sort of like a SEAL uh, delivery vehicle kind of thing. Um, 
so yeah, they have some stuff they probably can improve and, uh, you know, make it more capable, more easy to operate. Um, but I love it. Yeah. I mean, the whole concept, it's, it's cheap, um, it's adaptable and, you know, can be used in, you know, a bunch of different ways. And, uh, yeah, it's great. I, this, we just need more of this. Yeah. It's interesting out of the, I wouldn't call it failure, but out of the troubles of the LCS program, like it seemed like there was a lot of these other interesting developments on, on the mission modules and elsewhere that kind of actually led to a lot of this unmanned stuff. And like, it, it almost seems like in that PEO of small and unmanned combatants, it's like, you know, these unmanned systems are going to kind of like surpass and overtake the kind of LCS in, in terms of importance, but they kind of have a potentially common heritage in some ways. Yeah, I think you're probably right. You probably can't deny that they learned a lot because um, even though LCS, I think, uh, you know, from a material perspective is a little bit of a failure, uh, from a modular point of view, they actually do seem to have achieved something that hasn't been successful in other cases. So, you know, they were able to develop different mission packages. Did it work perfectly and did it all, you know, was it on cost and schedule? You know, no, but but they, they learned a lot and uh, you're right. That's probably being a lot of that learning is probably being applied here. Yeah, we never like, it's hard to understand about spillover effects, like learning from one program to another and the synergies that these create. Uh, we never really take that into account. Programs are just like their own unique analytical stovepipes that are kind of, you know, almost irrespective of what else is going on, right? You just assume the requirements fit into the overall force structure, but you just, you optimize and optimize on a, on a particular thing, not really thinking about how the whole, you know, enterprise kind of comes together sometimes. Well, yeah, like one of the, uh, yeah, I think that's, that would be a great study because I think, I think there's been a lot of spillover across the years and platforms that failed, you know, like even when you think about future combat systems, there's a, probably a ton of different technologies that came out of that, even though that was a collectively failed program uh, that turned into really useful things. Um, but one, one example for sure is the Comanche, um, the Comanche, definitely that technology, that learning went into the special forces helicopter that, you know, took out bin Laden. So, you know, there, you're right. I think there's a lot of spoiler and we probably don't give it, give credit for it. Yeah. The UH 60 M is apparently like pilots, <laughs> very much so enjoy flying that helicopter in terms of safety and reliability and the ability to get a mission done compared to the previous models. So, uh, yeah, it, that is an interesting thing, you know, like failure doesn't mean like it didn't have all these spillover effects and maybe we shouldn't fear it as much. The next one we got Israel plans laser wall, but questions remain about effectiveness and costs. And so this laser wall, there's this, uh, Nautilus laser, they call it, um, this is kind of as a replacement or a supplement to the iron dome, which are interceptor missiles. And they're saying here that the laser, it can take down a missile between two and three seconds, or it can take it down a rocket in two or three seconds. So it takes a little bit of time and then it, and then it'll have to move on to another set of rockets essentially. Um, so you're going to need to have a whole bunch of these lasers in one place. So not only does it take a while to get it done or to like take out a particular rocket, um, it it can only do so in line of sight. So it's not it can't like get on and track and, and destroy from beyond line of sight, which the interceptors can. So there's some trepidation as to whether the laser wall or a bunch of lasers would actually work to um, stop this, especially since Hamas itself 
has been uh, increasing its rocket fire rate and they can do like 125 rockets here in the order of a couple minutes. And so if you have that, you're going to have to have a whole bunch of, of lasers kind of at, at every point um, in order to take those down since those are pretty mobile. And so, yeah, so there's a couple of issues there. But overall, I kind of like the idea of still, you know, like Israel's pushing pretty forward on this. It looks like, you know, there's a lot of technical challenges, but they might be able to be overcome and just because you can't full on replace interceptors doesn't mean you can't, you know, have them work in tandem to some degree and potentially, you know, working together, it's more effective than just one or the other overall. And maybe in the future lasers overtake, but, you know, I'm glad to see them going out, taking the risk and, and doing something um, kind of futuristically cool. Yeah. I mean, it definitely seems like directed energy weapons have, you know, have jumped over the, uh, the barrier that was preventing them from really uh, scaling into, into real weapon systems. And so I, I was kind of skeptical and man, it just seems like it's a reality now. So um, I don't know how that happened. I mean, literally like a couple of years ago, we were still like, even Dr. Roper and things were like, he's like, eh, it's not see it really, really coming to fruition. And something happened with the technology just became viable. Yeah. It does seem, I mean, in tandem makes a lot of sense because, I think the point about they can only really go out to like, you know, five to six miles. Uh, if there's fog or if there's moisture in the air, it's going to be, you know, going to be challenging. So, um, you know, you have to prepare for, you need to be able to work in poor weather conditions, right? Like if there's missiles or fire, you're going to have to be able to respond to them. So yeah, it, it'll be interesting what the right mix is because if there is poor weather and, and the, and Hamas are, somebody who's using this the, the the enemy knows that your system is all like mostly lasers and you only have a few interceptors uh they could achieve really good effects by just bombarding you whenever it rains <laughs> and, uh, you know and then you fire you fire the few interceptors you have as backup right. and then you're stuck so yeah you're gonna have to be smart about this i think you'll have to we'll probably have to see how it works in operations uh or in deployment in terms of what cost savings there are there but uh, yeah, I agree with you. Definitely seems promising. I mean, this is such an important problem that it seems like you need layered defense in a way, right? They're, they're talking about here, by the way, the executive said that the cost of a laser is 10% that of a missile interceptor. Um, so I wonder what that means in terms of, is it just the marginal cost of killing an um, incoming missile or... You know, is that the full end cost, including research and development and, and procurement? Or I don't know exactly what that means, but. Uh, I'd expect that means it's like, you know, building a missile, you know, building one of the one of the interceptors, you know, even if it's like a uh, hundred thousand bucks, it probably is. You know, it probably is a fraction of the price to use power, you know, grid because they talked about plugging into the grid and just shooting a you know, shooting an energy beam based off that power. So that kind yeah, of but they said sense. here that the cost cost of using a laser is 10%, not like the cost of, you know, building a laser. Because if, if the cost of building a laser was 10% of an interceptor and the laser is reusable and the interceptor just does one, like that's huge, right? But if yeah, it's just yeah. 10% for like a kill, um, then it's like, oh, well, you know, I, what goes into that? But still, um <laughs> Right. Is that the energy cost to like the cost of the electricity compared to the cost of uh, producing the interceptor? Yeah, I guess you have to see the, the details on that one. 
I still would like to see, you know, what what came of that. Remember the ABMS thing where they took a howitzer with like some sensors and AI and just like shot a cruise missile out of the sky. Um, can't you like? I'd like to see more of that, or just like you know, a Vulcan or some kind of chain gun with AI on it, and just like take these things out with with bullets too. I mean, there's a third layer of defense there, right? Like the laser didn't get it, the interceptor didn't get it, and then bam, you got this. Yeah, I mean, I, they did prove that it was the Urca, um, the, the cannon, the extended range uh, cannon. Uh, I, mean, I think it, I think it can. I think with the smart munition that it, that it used, I think it can actually can do that. But I, I'm not sure like the range that it has to be. It might not be like a a really short range thing. I, I don't know. Yeah, no, that's definitely a real thing. They definitely did that, and I think that's one of the capabilities of that cannon. Yeah, I'd like to see. In- I've never seen an actual test of like incoming missiles at a carrier or something. And like, <laughs> you know, these chain guns kind of like opening up and, and trying to take them out. I, I would just like to, I would like to know like how effective that is or where they they are on that. Well, the, the ships have, uh, have that with the, uh, with the Aegis, um, m- you know, the, the missile shoot down system. I mean, it, that definitely is, it, that's basically a chain gun that, uh, um, yeah but do you know like how like have you seen I, re- I remember there was an exercise with an lcs where they had a bunch of like fast boat attacks and the lcs just for the life of itself could not stop them right but like what what is that effectiveness like i know they they have that system on the ships but like for for shooting down missiles but i just like to know like What's the probability is if if I have ten missiles coming at me at the same time? What's the probability that all ten are killed? Right? I've no, I just have no idea what like I don't even have like a guess range. Yeah, I don't know what the overwhelm. I mean, at some point there's an overwhelm factor, and I think that's the point with the South China Sea fight is that the ability of the enemy to overwhelm U.S. forces that are presenting themselves as targets out there if the missiles are if China has enough of them, which they seem to, and they are long range enough, which they're getting, you know, better at that, um, then, you know, yeah, they launch 20 missiles at your carrier. Maybe you can effectively take out 10 or 15, but maybe you miss five and those five are, you know, pretty, uh, pretty damaging. So yeah, I think that's uh, that's a good question. They probably won't, right, tell, well, they probably won't tell us the answer to that. <laughs> no, they, they would never release that unless, it, but this is, this is almost the problem with me for like DOD, test stuff right because it feels like when you when you're confident you have a good weapon system or that you're doing well you're 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 happy to talk about that stuff and you you heard about the space force generals were like hey we overclassify we should kind of deter with with you know unclassifying some of this stuff but it feels like you know if you can take out if they can launch 50 missiles and you can take out 50 in like pretty reliably you should be like touting that, right? Be like, man, we are like all this talk about, you know, carrier sinkers, like that's all bullshit because of X, right? But the fact that no one talks like that makes me assume like you, you launch a few and it's pretty likely one, at least one will get through. Yeah, it's funny. I had one of my colleagues that I'm writing paper with is uh, a big fan of that. It talks about the days where, you know, they would, uh, the U.S. Navy would roll up in the like uh, North Sea and they would, you know, do this thing where they would turn on all their electronics and basically just kind of give Russia a show <laughs> of what they could do. And, uh, and basically it was like, you know, it was, it was a powerful symbol. So 
yeah, I think that's a, a really good point is if we feel confident in some of our capabilities, you know, maybe demonstrating them in different ways uh, to, to show China what could happen would be a good deterrence. And that's supposed to be our new strategy is integrated deterrence. So maybe we need to think about that more. Yeah, well, I guess the first the first thing is, uh, you know, field good systems and test them robustly. And then you can kind of, right, like you can't jump the gun on that one. Uh, yeah, you have to feel confident in your capabilities. You, yeah, you, know. you have to feel confident before you exude the confidence. Otherwise, you know, you just get punched in the nose and you, you can't do anything about it. Um, or you can, do, or you can do Russia's tactics and just say, we did this. We we, we did these amazing things and just put out a press release. Uh, yeah. Trust us. It's, it's funny, though, because they do it. They're like the opposite, right? They're like, they'll say things that are outlandish. And it's like. I think, you know, like you see this time and time again that the intelligence analysts always like overstate Soviet capabilities. And then like at the beginning of the Persian War, like everyone thought like the force structure was so much more robust in Iraq because they had all these Soviet technologies. And then it just turned out not to be true. (laughs) So like the Russians are willing to say we can do more than we can actually do, whereas the U.S. is like not really willing to say what it can or cannot do. Yeah, I don't know what the right answer is. In one way, it's like, you know, by not they're not conveying it, people can assume the worst and like, oh my God, they must have super secret lasers all over the place, you know, and or you show them and they go, oh yeah, we know how to defeat that. So yeah, I don't know what the right answer is fundamentally. But the general malaise, right? Like when you have when you had like heightened come up and like everyone's like, oh, we're falling behind, blah blah blah. It just, you know, it, it feels like there's kind of like a cycle of. I don't know, just like low morale that kind of comes from that kind of stuff. And like people, it like becomes almost a self-fulfilling prophecy, even if it wasn't true. I mean, people just keep saying it, right? Yeah. I mean, I think the, I think the, the purpose of it was to wake people up and to say, Hey guys, we need to stop thinking that, you know, all the wars we fought, we've won, you know, in recent years, but we, we aren't going to, uh, it's not going to be quite as easy this next, this next one. Um, and so, you know, I think that it was meant as a wake up call, but I, I take your point that, yeah, it's probably a little demoralized the folks who think, you know, they're doing the best they can. Um, but you know, this is why we, we do need change and I, I hope we can, I hope we can change and think differently, you know, come up with better concepts of, of operation and better tech, different technologies to, to deploy against those concepts rather than just rely on all these exotic weapon systems we have today. So. Yeah, well, maybe not as much like low morale in the U.S., but definitely it bolsters morale in China and Russia, right? They're like, oh, man, they, these guys are saying like they can't do anything. So maybe we're, we're better than we thought, right? I wonder, I always wonder that, like, if they actually believe us. Like, I think, uh, I think, I think there must be at least a few people in high levels who think like we're doing some kind of dis- mis- misinformation campaign or something, <laughs> but yeah, I'd love to know. The well, we still them. spend a lot against them, and and we also have a lot. They're like the U.S. has a lot of combat capability slash experience. You know, just in the last twenty years of being able to put bombs on target, right? And there's you can't really fake that. There, there's definitely like a reason <laughs> that that they should be have some trepidations, but I don't know. Overall, yeah, China definitely. I mean, I think that's. I think China's acknowledged like internally that that's like their greatest weakness is they've, they've never really exercised their forces which is why they've done a lot more exercises um and they're doing a lot more training and they've reorganized and they're trying to 
you know, build up those concepts that they never really had to play with. But they've had some engagements with the with the Indians, but yeah, pretty small scale. So that's their biggest biggest uh, downfall. The Russian military, on the other hand, Syria, the years in Syria have actually sort of uh, strengthened from all indications, at least, they've actually strengthened their abilities and got them more integrated. So they're actually in, in pretty good shape from the assessments I've read. But yeah, yeah, definitely. Yeah, well, of course, just yesterday, I believe, right, they kind of like walked into the Donbass. So we'll see. We'll see what happens in Ukraine. Like there's going to be an unfolding epic. And the last thing we'll, we'll touch on here, Israelis in Singapore build, sell surface-to-surface missile in one year. This is called the Blue Spear. It's a subsonic air-breathing sea-skimming missile. And it's fired from either land or a ship, range of 180 miles. Um, it can be used in a standard launcher. Um, fits into a ship or a truck and the joint venture is already generating tens of millions of dollars in revenue and they're looking at other customers in latin america europe and asia so it feels like this uh blue spear here is kind of like a naval strike missile in a way or very similar to it but they were able to develop this thing uh, they said build it so i'm sure there's a lot of legacy israeli technology kind of put into it but they did it in a year and they're already generating revenue. Um, so, you know, why isn't the naval strike missile or is it too kind of classified at this point to be sold? But this is kind of, again, FMS for me is a big, you know, indicator of uh, viability and, and real competition for these things. Yeah, no, I'm sure the you know, El Razum, naval strike missile, there's things on there that we probably wouldn't sell. But yeah, I think it does kind of show that there are, you know, we need to, we need to build for exportability. That's been, you know, it's in DODIs. It's in, you know, it's supposed to be an acquisition strategy consideration. Uh, I don't think we're great at it. Um, and we probably do need to start planning any future weapon system. It should have an exportability variant. And if there's some secret sauce, you know, a, a U.S. one, um, because you're right, that's the only way we're going to get, get the margins. And it also helps with kind of building alliances and, uh, joint operations and things like that. Like if you're using similar weapons, you know, you can, you can often work together easier because you have, you know, similar ways of targeting things and such like that. So yeah, that, uh, I think the, the fact that they, they, they were able to do this as quickly as they did shows, uh, shows, shows the new era we're entering, but of course Israelis are super good at this. So not surprising yeah. that uh, they were. Well, the Naval strike missile, by the way, I just looked it up on Wikipedia. They say, um, Naval strike missile is 115 mile range compared to the 180 mile range here. Oh, so, really? Yeah. yeah. It's interesting. There might be some uh, classified, uh, things that they hold back on that, but you know, yeah, I think like, you know, any kind of cruise missile, jasms, whatever we should be selling those selling those as a, uh, you know, FMS item. But yeah, it's, you know, I think this kind of, for me, I guess, gets back to one of Pete Modigliani's points where he had an article that was like, okay, you can't have like the lower end version of something that's like 70% of the capability and 70% of the cost. It's going to have to be like 50 or 70% of the capability at 20% of the cost or 30% of the cost, right? To kind of reach those, uh, foreign markets and, and those other guys to really bring them in so like that whole idea of being able to provide very similar capabilities but at much lower cost is like really requires a, a change of mindset kind of 
Yeah, but it also is the same mindset we're talking about that, you know, for the U.S. is, you know, we sort of build everything for the worst case scenario. Um, you know, we assume that like every single missile will be hit with the most advanced EW jammer, the most uh, high end radar, you know, SA 400, 600 system. Like, you know, so we have, we have to recognize that there are times for really exotic weapons for a particular mission. But in some cases, building a ton of, you know, cheaper things that can achieve, you know, achieve some of the same effects, but with, you know, more, more loss, more attrition is maybe okay. And you get this, the quantities of scale through being able to sell those things, maybe, you know, various markets, uh, FMS stuff, uh, or just by virtue of the fact that, you know, as a military, you can buy more. And, um, and so, you know, you're burning that, you're, you're burning the cost down and because they're simpler, they're easier to make. You can, you can get, you can get more faster. Um, you know, if you need to mobilize, you can get them faster. So yeah, I think we have to look at the broader thing and, and just in general, simplify some of our weapon systems so that not everything is meant for the most, the most riskiest missions, um, and have like a more, a greater mix. I think, I think Pete in that article talked about that, about the mix, uh, the mix of capabilities, high end, high, low mix. So, yeah. And, uh, I'll just say it one more time, make industrial mobilization cool again. <laughs> That's all we got time for today. Thanks for joining me, Matt. And we'll talk to you next week. <laughs> Thanks, sir. This concludes another episode of acquisition talk. If you have comments, interview recommendations, or just want to chat, please contact us at acquisitiontalk.com. Thanks again, and until next time.